0: the number one regret of the dying, is not having had the courage to live a life that was true to themselves. So really this comes back down to, do you have the tools, the support, to dig deep enough to find that courage? Because courage is innate. But do you have the tools, the support, to get past what you need to get past, given your own history of trauma or other difficulties, to dig deep enough to find that courage? And for some people, the answer is no.
1: How do you get 10,000 people to take a step to the left? What's behind the relentless mindset of a world champion? Why do teams of exceptional talent fail? How do you manage the pressure to perform? These are some the of the curious questions. We will attempt to answer as we bring you world leaders, curious minds, exceptional talent, successful CEOs, and incredible human beings who know how to inspire great leaders and are inspiring great leaders themselves. I am Craig Johns, high performance leadership expert, international speaker and CEO of Speakers Institute, corporate and world sport coach. This is, The Inspiring Great Leaders Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. Welcome to the Inspiring Great Leaders Podcast. Our guest today is the founder of the Center for Self-Fidelity and the author of the groundbreaking book, Self-Fidelity, How Being True to Yourself Uplifts Your Working Life. And Being True, published just last year. With three decades of international business experience across multiple industries, she's worn many hats from being the first Global Director of Employee Experience at a major healthcare corporation to her role as a part-time Chief Talent Activator, a Thrive Global Programme Facilitator, and Executive Coach. Her influence extends to some of the world's most renowned organizations including NBN, ANZ, Cisco, Ralph Lauren, Adobe Masterclass, and many, many more. Today, we are privileged to have this exceptional leader, consultant, coach, and author who has dedicated her life to authentic leadership and empowering individuals to find their true selves in the workplace. Please welcome to the show, Cassandra Goodman. Cassandra, welcome.
0: Thank you, Craig. Thank you so much for that warm, very thorough introduction. I really appreciate it.
1: Uh, You're welcome. Now, we were having a quick chat before we started and you're currently living in Melbourne, but you mentioned you grew up in Sydney. Tell me a little bit about life for you growing up as a child in Sydney. And what was the big dream when you looked up to the sky?
0: Yeah, well, Craig, I have listened to a few of your podcast episodes and I knew this question was coming about my big dream. (laughs) So I have done some reflection on what that was. And to be honest, When I was a little girl, uh, my dream was really to be a high achiever. Uh, I grew up in a household that was quite pressurised due to my father's work-related stress, working for the government in New South Wales. And what I know now, looking back at that time, was that when children grew up in pressurised households, often they acquire this belief that somehow they need to be different or better in order to be enough, you know, to be worthy of the sort of love and support we need as little vulnerable humans. And for me, the belief I acquired growing up in that context was that in order to be enough, I needed to be a high-achieving, low-maintenance machine. So, the honest answer to that question, Craig, is my dream was to continue to be a a high-achieving, low-maintenance machine and continue my streak of being ducks of the school and and all all the hard work I was putting into being that little girl.
1: That's a lot of pressure to put on yourself. which which can be really productive but also counterproductive and then you talk about your your dad being involved in politics and in government in a high pressure situations how did that shape who you are today you know that being one putting pressure on yourself to to be a high achiever but also seeing your dad performing at a high level as well
0: well, it, it's shaped everything that I am and everything that I do. You know, uh, without that experience, I wouldn't have written the two books I've written. I wouldn't be doing the work I do today. So it, it is absolutely fundamental to who I am today and the work I do. And having spoken and coached hundreds of leaders, I know that I'm not alone in having this little girl inside of me who really just uh, wants to feel like she's enough And has a certain strategy for achieving that enoughness that is a powerful strategy, but it's a very narrow strategy. And and of course, we know that way of being, uh, being so driven to prove oneself and to finally reach this elusive place of feeling worthy through our achievements is... um, is not sustainable is corrosive to our well-being and in many ways is anti-leadership and it took me many years to figure that out but but that that experience in my formative years has absolutely driven the work i do today and i'm grateful for it because um it's given me a toolkit uh, a, a cluster of practices to reconnect to who I really am, to cultivate a sense of enoughness and worthiness that comes from who I am, not what I do or what I've achieved. And that continues to be a lifelong practice, uh, but one that I know is valuable to many.
1: Mm. I I was listening to a great podcast and actually shared it uh, earlier today. Um, So for listeners, it'll be a couple of weeks ago for you. Uh, Listening to uh, former All Blacks coach, Steve Hansen, you know, one of the, I think he had a winning record of 92%, which is quite phenomenal, one of the world's greatest coaches. And he talked about your, and, and was a good reminder around your greatest strength is also your greatest weakness. And so it's really interesting to see that you reflect on that around, you know, really wanting to be high achieving, but that also can be that weakness as well. Do you see this a lot with other people that you deal with?
0: All the time. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I think I talk about now that there's two different types of fuel sources. The first fuel source is that 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 power that comes from within, the power of trying to prove ourselves, trying to you know relentlessly strive for this place of feeling worthy through our achievements, and we know that that place is actually a mirage because it's never ever enough. No amount of achievement, no amount of you know material possessions no amount of accolades is ever ever enough so that's a powerful fuel source i see it driving many entrepreneurs mm. business leaders to the top of their game i'd say it you know the in terms of personal energy sources for many high achievers that is what they're tapping into right mm. they're not sure what they're trying to prove and who they're trying to prove it to <laughs> they just know mm. they can't stop um and so the alternative energy source that i i am really stand for today and and continue to try to cultivate a connection to is the the energy source that comes from who we are at our core, our unique essence. You know, this idea that we value uh, and feed and fuel this unique life force, this unique essence we bring to the world, which is a unique way that the very best of human nature kind of blends and expresses itself through each of us. And when we um, feel we are able to harness that fuel source, it's sustainable, it's way more inclusive, it's still powerful, but but it's way more gentle, and it's not all about me, <laughs> which is so important.
1: <laughs> all right, you got lots of, lots of questions racing through my head right now, so let's uh, narrow on to a couple here. We've obviously got the big dichotomy of Uh, we know how important it is to, if we want to achieve six or, you know, achieve a level of success, whatever success is for you, we need a big vision, right? So we need something really big to push us out of our comfort zone to chase for that drives us, that keeps us determined and motivated, but also, you know, having sort of a lens on that, but also a lens on being extremely present in the moment and what's required right now, balancing those two is real, is not easy and is probably one of the biggest dichotomies that leaders face. How can we, you know, really lean into ourselves when we're, we're really so focused on both the future, but being present at the moment for other people.
0: Yeah, that's a great question, Craig. I mean, of course I don't have all the answers, but I'll offer my perspective on that. So I love the word aspiration. I think the word aspiration within it has some flexibility, something that evolves and changes, something that inspires inspires us to aim high, but there's less rigidity in that for me, the word aspiration, which I think originally comes from something about the stars, you know, this idea of having a North Star that's, that's ever-present but yet that we might find ourselves taking different pathways to get there. Mm. Um, so for me, this idea of having an aspiration in life something we we aspire to be something we a contribution we aspire to make is important um, and that contribution might be to aspire to be the best parent we can be or the best partner we can be you know that aspiration doesn't need to be grandiose or or um you know there's no there's no expectation there for some it isn't for others that that aspiration is closer to home right but for me the question is what is it what does it mean for you to achieve that or to move closer towards that aspiration? If the answer is got anything to do with your enoughness, your self-worth, then that can be problematic. But if the meaning we attach to lifting to Contribute to that aspiration or move closer to that aspiration. If the meaning we come to attach to that is because I would have left the world a better place, that I would have left a legacy, that I would have activated the best in myself to try to activate the best in others, that I would contribute in some small way to the mess we find ourselves in as a as a human race and as a planet. Uh, If the you know, it's really the why, the why, and the meaning we attach. To this drive within us to contribute. To, to me, it's the the distinction of of where that that motivation comes from. Is it desire to prove to finally feel like we're enough, or is it something bigger beyond ourselves?
1: This is a challenge too, though. I think very few people actually have clarity on what their ambition is. Uh, Very few people have clarity on what the even purpose is in life. And, you know, I would, well, I'm going to take a stab in the, in the dark, so to speak here, that only about 10, probably 10% of the population that I have met actually have any clarity on either of those two. And those who have real true clarity on their ambition is even less than that. I, I would say only 1% if I'm lucky, because I still see them saying yes to everything. And when you don't have clarity on what your vision is, what your ambition is, you don't know how to say no, because you don't know really what it is you're going for. Um, So how can people find their ambition or get clarity on their vision? How can people, and and that's one aspect, but then how can they find clarity on what their purpose is?
0: Well, I, I think firstly, you've got to have a, desire or you know perhaps even the courage to want to know that right i you know i'm sure you see this in your work but often when i start working with leaders um to start to look within and explore their inner world, and to ask some of these questions you know what is my aspiration for my life and as i've said before you know the aspiration might be just to be happy to be a great parent like, so. The aspiration doesn't need to be grandiose, but but I think clarity on what is your aspiration for a life well lived? What what do you aspire to um to have experience in your short, precious lifetime? Like so there needs to be an appetite to want to know the answer to that question. And often there's a lot of fear around actually looking within to figure that out. Because as you say, Craig, um so many people live their whole lives doing what they think they should be doing in order to feel like they're enough based on how they've been conditioned by their mum or their dad or someone else around them, a coach or a teacher or the world in general. And so there's this real terror that if I was to pause, if I was to look within, what if I've actually been on the wrong path this whole time? What if I'm not who I think I am? You know, What if I'm not a high-powered executive who has all the answers? Then who the heck am I, and what does that mean? So there's it takes courage, right? And and there's of course also some privilege in all of this, you know. I'll, you know, I think it, this sort of conversation it would be negligent not to admit that you and I li- live in a privileged world, right? Um, we have available to us resources. And opportunities and choices that millions of people around the world don't have. So this is a very kind of privileged, I suppose, conversation through one lens. Uh, but but I feel like um, for those of us who reach a point where we realize the way we're being, that, that you know, I, one of the things I often say is that it's not enough to love what you do even though we're conditioned to say, you know, love what you do and you'll never work a day in your life. Well, I've learned the hard way. It's not enough to love what you do unless you love who you're being while you Mm -hmm. do it. And for many people that that deep niggling feeling, I don't love who I'm being. In fact, I don't even like who I'm being, but I'm too scared to look within because I actually have no idea who I am anymore. Uh, This is for many a terrifying train Mm -hmm. of thoughts. So, Yes, it's not for everyone. Yes, it's not for the faint of heart. Yes, we need courage. Yes, for some people in their situations, you know, from a financial responsibility perspective, they don't have the luxury of asking these questions because if they were to ask these questions and really elicit honest responses, the the implications might be catastrophic financially, in a relationship, who knows? So these these are questions that, that I that I don't treat lightly um, and that there's never any judgment for people who do just need to keep going through the motions to do what they need to do, to have what they need to have to be okay, to be secure financially or in a relationship or in other in other ways. So, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, Craig, but um, for me, you know, I, I often think about the research from the palliative care ner- nurse Bronnie Weir, I think it was, who discovered that the number one regret of the dying is not having had the courage to live a life that was true to themselves. So really this comes back down to do you have the tools, the support, to dig deep enough to find that courage because courage is innate, but do you have the tools, the support to get past what you need to get past given your own history of trauma or other difficulties to dig deep enough to find that courage. And for some people, the answer is no. Uh, but for those who f- find the answer is yes, then I think that's, that's a beautiful thing.
1: There's one word in there that's kind of, that, that, that's, that's got stuck in my head a little bit here and that was privilege living in a privileged world. Uh, I've visited 60 countries and and lived in a couple where I had, people who had absolutely nothing right beside me and we had lots of things and a lot of the time they looked a lot happier than what we did and so i'm not sure just because we have more material things we have um what the first world countries might think as this is it you know we've got what we need i'm not sure that's always the case and i think sometimes when you have more it actually creates um complacency it creates complexity, and sometimes creates confusion. And so, when we talk about ambition, and you're talking about there, you know, um, having clarity of your ambition. If your ambition is just to, you know, be a grandparent who makes your children happy, or are your grandchildren happy? Uh, that that's your job, right? That's your ambition. That's awesome. Because you're what we're doing is we're uh, taking humanity and enhancing that one or two people or three people at a time, but I'm all, yeah, I, I think sometimes when you, t- I, I'm always, always stuck on this word privilege because I don't know if we are.
0: Yeah, I hear you, Craig. It's a very loaded word, right? And, um, I have an emotional reaction to that word privilege as well. I haven't found a better way to describe, you know the access to resources that we have. You know, from a mental health perspective, um, and, but and I agree with you. I think there's lots written. You know, I'm an avid reader, and this this observation you've made that those who live with far less tend to be far happier than many of us in the Western world that from an outside perspective might say, you know, what what have you got to be upset about? You live in a safe country, you've got adequate food, clean water to drink, a roof over your head, no threats of bombs dropping on your home, your children are being educated, you know, what, what can you be so miserable about? And yet we find ourselves in this epidemic of anxiety and depression and burnout and mental health challenges. So. There's there's no easy answer. I suppose my I, I'm always conscious, you know. Um I'm always conscious of the conditioning and this and the resources I have access to when I talk about this idea of doing the inner work of being true to ourselves. And I think it's always important from my integrity and values perspective to mention it in the context of these conversations. Mm. Because, you know, my worst fear is someone listening who doesn't have access to, say, the sort of therapy that I've had in in my life to get to where I am, the sort of uh, resources that I've been privy to in my ex- global executive career and like all the coaching and leadership training and other things that I've had, I'd hate for someone to think, well, that's nice for you, you know, white lady – He's had all this stuff, but I've had none of that. And so that's why I feel it's important to mention it. but of course none of this is simple. and with what you know what I've described as privilege also comes pressure and expectation and um, other layers of conditioning that can actually go against this idea of, of being true to ourselves. So like all things, these are very complex multifaceted multi-layered challenges mm-hmm. and conversations.
1: Talking about understanding yourself. I, we're we're products of our environments, right? So we, we grow up, you know, and for some, they may just grow up in a, in a town or a city. They, um, even if they, they have the opportunity to go to a university, they say they study finance and then they go straight into working in a bank that is still near where they live. They had the same similar group of friends I've always had do, can they truly understand themselves or do you need to, how I would frame it, go get lost first before you can understand who you are? Because <laughs> I, I feel some might be able to understand who they are at a young age, but I don't think many people really have that, that ability to push themselves out of what they've been conditioned to, as you said, in an environment to really understand themselves.
0: Yeah, I think there's some definitely some truth in that, Craig. You know, I've never thought about that question you just asked me. So uh, I think there's definitely some truth in that. And I I suppose for, for some percentage of people, they are fulfilling their their life's calling to study finance and to become an accountant and and that it's actually completely congruent with who they are and, you know, the aspiration for a life well-lived. But for many, and I, I suppose it's safe to assume the majority, that that might actually be a path that's emerged from conditioning and expectation rather than something that's come from within And so, yeah, what does it mean to get lost, to find ourselves? I mean, we can get lost in all sorts of ways. We can get lost by finding ourselves in a job that we suddenly realise is is become soul-destroying. You know, we can get lost in a relationship that doesn't respect and honour who we are. Mm -hmm. Uh, we can get lost in so many different ways, and I suppose it's the it's the waking up <laughs> to that reality that we have lost. We've lost ourselves. The waking up to the reality that we don't have to continue to go through the motions and sleepwalk through our days and look forward to you know some distant future where <laughs> it might feel better or rest or, you know, continue to numb through alcohol or social media or shopping and all the things that we do, you know, there's another path that's to living a more, uh, more vibrant, more honest, more truthful expression mm. of ourselves and that, that stepping onto that pathway is terrifying and can take years of practice of self-leadership and, Uh, is a never-ending practice of course correction back no no this is who I really am let me just remember one more time for the millionth time no this is who I am this is what I stand for and this is my aspiration for a life well lived so all of that takes work it takes commitment um and it's not and it's not easy so that's my attempt at answering that question. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's, it's good. It's a tough question. I know I'm not making that easy here. Um, I, I see this quite quite commonly with a lot of coaches uh, and, and also people that try and identify who someone is, is they tend to focus uh, a lot on moments where things don't go right, where things mm-hmm. might be challenged. Um, for me, what I notice a lot is that the true character of someone comes out in, in both adversity, but also great success. So those moments of success, the moments where they do something really, really well. And I feel a lot of the time it's too much focus when people are trying to help someone identify who they are when things go to crap. But for me growing up in my world, some of those greatest lessons are also in success. And how do you respond in those moments and who, and how do you behave in those moments? And How does that affect your ongoing who you are? and so I'm really curious from your perspective when you're looking at this understanding yourself how much weight do we need to put on both sides to really grasp who we are because if we if we just kind of You know everything's going well everything's going to plan. It's very difficult to understand like to, to dive deep into that but it's it's when it, you achieve something really good and or you do something really stupid or something doesn't quite go to plan for you.
0: Yeah, I I agree. So, I think it's both and, you know, I, I, in my approach to coaching, I generally always start with giving people a stronger, clearer sense of of who they are at their core, what I would describe as their essence, you know. So, I will always start with this, um, some tools or frameworks or conversations and you know in my second book being true i often i offer a series of questions that people can reflect on or ask others about that helps them understand who are they being when they're being most themselves like if you had to distill craig down to a few drops of essence what would be kind of the key active ingredients there Mm -hmm. and same for me so i i You know, in the work I stand for, which is this practice I call self fidelity, the practice of honoring, being faithful to who we really are at our core. Obviously, it's hard to do that if you're not really sure who you are at your core. And, of course, that's not an easy thing to get a handle on. But, you know, with with focus and commitment over time, we get clearer and clearer. Ah, oh, that's who I am. That's, that's who, who, who I'm being when I'm being most myself. That is, these ways of showing up in the world are fully congruent with that core. So, you know, I think it's important to get some sort of foothold there. And I think it's important to talk about, How we show up in moments of hardship or challenge or under pressurized situation, because for me, these situations often bring out, you know, the kind of the sharp edges and what. Um, I would describe as the different parts of ourselves. So my coaching is grounded in the um, the modality of internal family systems, which is a evidence-based therapeutic framework that's been used for almost four decades. And that framework says that there's not one Craig, there's not one Cassie. We're kind of like these living, breathing babushka dolls. We have a core and we have many parts And when we're under pressure, often it's these more protective, more defensive, more judgmental um, parts that spring into action to protect us and to get us through. And so thinking about how we show up under pressure is a really interesting way to think about the different protective parts and protective layers of ourselves that have built up over time because it's these protective layers, the, the husk, if you like, that we have to learn how to see uh, see beyond to that core or that seed uh, of who we really are. And so, you know, in my podcast, the key question I ask is, can you tell me about a time when you realised that you were not being true to yourself? Because I've found that is the, the most reliable pathway back to who we really are by actually starting to examine those times when we realise, no, I, I'm off track. This is not who I am. This doesn't feel right. I, I'm not feeling good about how I'm being. It's it's the examination and the reflection on those moments that lead us to a deeper understanding of who we really are and the parts of ourselves that can get in the way of us being that way more often.
1: Mm. Can we... And how easy is it for people to understand themselves on their own? Or do they need someone to help them along the way?
0: Now, what I'm about to say is going to sound like I'm saying that because I'm a coach, I'm saying this because I'm a coach, (laughs) but it's honestly, my view is that it's really hard to see our own essence it's really hard to appreciate the special unique qualities we bring to the world because it's kind of like, you know, a fish seeing the water, so to speak. It's so, it's so, um, it's been there for so long. It's so normal to us that we lose the ability to see it. So whether it's a coach or a friend or a family member, a partner or someone, a trusted colleague, you know, maybe it's just what your colleagues write on your farewell card when you leave a workplace. Maybe that's the lens that you need. But I do believe, and I've seen this time and time again, even with the most extraordinary humans I have the privilege of knowing and working with they can't see their own essence. They can't appreciate this unique energy and quality they bring. It has to be kind of reflected back to them. And I think there is a practice called the reflective best self practice that I think appeared in Harvard Business Review at some point to make this very point that we need some sort of reflected best self practice where we see ourselves through the eyes of others because it's really, I think, difficult to cultivate that strong appreciation of our essence without some sort of openness to an outside perspective on that.
1: Mm. Yeah, it's taking me back to a couple of instances in my life. The first one I can, that I'm really thinking about at the moment is being at university in a sport management um, paper and a couple of, you know, they they were friends as well. I remember that we were sitting down having a discussion and one of them goes, you are, an exceptional manager. And I was like, whoa, hang on. I haven't heard this before. You know, I'm used to being the captain or, um, you know, I was head boy as well, but I never, and to me, they're more leadership, right? I never really thought of this management. And and so it kind of took me back and I was like, okay, I haven't. And then I started asking questions and this is a curious mind of me going, okay, how do you see that? Why do you see that? What am I doing? Because I don't know. Uh, and then the second one is around uh, when i started speakers institute corporate and the and i had known i'd done something before like this but hadn't really thought about it and our team were going you're a remarkable at relationship selling it's your it's your natural genius and i'm like and they're like how do you do it is there like a step-by-step formula or is it based on instinct and i said it's purely based on instinct i have no idea what i'm doing I, I'm just doing this. I feel like I'm making this up all the way along. And they're like, can we bottle it up, whatever you're doing? And I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> and so it it took a it took someone and actually it took them a long time to draw out exactly what I was doing. And so I, I think, you know, having someone, it's a mentor, it's a coach, it's someone, a colleague, it could even be a family member that can help you draw out some of these things. Because as you say, when you're in your, quite often when you're in your genius zone or what you're really good at instinctively and naturally, you, your gifts that you have, you, you just do it and you don't know why you're doing it and how you're doing it.
0: Yeah. And you don't appreciate how unique and special and powerful it is. I've just written down yeah. those two words, natural genius. I, I think that's a beautiful way to describe essence. And you know, I, I cheekily I uh, said to you, Craig, that I had a question about the the last line that you share as you wrap up your podcast, which I think is something along the lines with where where the ordinary don't belong. And I, I did say to you, I feel like the, the term ordinary human is actually an oxymoron because we are all different, unique, and special. Where the definition of ordinary, I did look it up. I googled it. It says <laughs> not different or special, right? But we are all different or as unique as, as our fingerprints and we are all special. So this idea of understanding, amplifying, honouring our natural genius is I think so powerful and that starts with having um, having some awareness of what that natural genius is because the very best of human nature is seeking to express itself each of us in really, you know, powerful, special, unique ways. And, you know, the modality of IFS would say that unfortunately we have a lot of parts in, inside of us that kind of block or corrupt or somehow um, skew the the expression of that essence. And so really that's my life's work to help people to remove the obstacles that get in the way of them trusting in their basic goodness, their their natural genius, because it's absolutely in all of us.
1: I think one of the biggest obstacles I see uh, when I deal with speakers or thought leaders or even, you know, leaders of organizations is you identify what their natural genius is and they try and avoid speaking about it because they go, well, everyone knows that, right? Everyone can do that. And... And that's why a lot of the world's best athletes are the terrible coaches because they just, it's natural to them, it's easy, but what they don't realize is what's easy to you, so when you're in your natural genius, what's easy to you, other people find absolutely Inspiring and magical, and they want to know all about it. And here, these people sit there and go, well, no one wants to hear about that because they already know it, right? It's easy. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> I've never thought about it like it in quite that way, Craig, but you're absolutely right. You know, it's isn't it ironic that our own ease in being ourselves is, is the very thing that maybe stops us from fully embodying it and amplifying it? I think that's really kind of sad and ironic, but very true.
1: Oh, I get caught up in it all the time. My team are like, why are you so abstract with certain things? And I, because I said, if I explain it like this, this, and this, it sounds really boring. they're like, no, but everyone gets it. And it's really, really good in their head. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a good reality check for me all the time. It's like, stay out of the abstract, get to the concrete, because that's what people love. Mm. They can actually see it and feel it, which is good. Now, you've had a, had a lot of experience in not only working with, but also working in some quite big companies. And, and one of those was Boopa, where you're a um, global director of employee experience. You know, Bupa for actually for those who don't know, do you want to share a little bit about who Booper was and what your role was? And then we'll dive a little bit into kind of some, some things I want to discuss around it.
0: So Bupa is a global healthcare company. They would now describe themselves as healthcare partners to millions of people around the world. So Bupa has quite a diverse portfolio across aged care, private health insurance, um, optical, optical dental care. Uh, They're an organisation that's headquartered out of London in the UK and have a very big um, established business here in Australia, New Zealand. So I was with Bupa for six wonderful years, and it really has been a highlight of of my working life. Um, I started at Bupa in a role, I think it was Director of Customer Experience Design. So I had the good fortune of establishing Bupa's first Human centered design practice back right. before human centered design was cool, um, and that was a wonderful opportunity. And um, I also worked uh, with the executive to build the capability to listen, learn, and respond to customer feedback. So this was working with a big consulting firm. This was a big, a big like global um, effort to. Yeah, to build that capability, not only to bring in regular feedback from customers, but to build the capability to take that feedback to drive localized and systemic change. Mm-hmm. And so, I had this interesting um, experience where I, the more time I spent in customer experience design roles, the more I realized that great customer experience needs to be underpinned with great employee experience, and greater employee great employee experiences needs people to feel happier and healthier, and so when there was this magical moment of time at Bupa, where the the global CEO um, had this vision for workplaces to become a major source of well being for the world's population, this idea that workplaces, not government, not in, in any other institute, but workplaces. Would become a major source of well-being and there was a chief people officer at the time who had a vision for bupa to become the best place to work on planet earth and these two um folks kind of came together at this moment of time and under that combined leadership created the first global director of employee experience and well-being i remember seeing that job post on the internet and just getting goosebumps thinking this is it. <laughs> this is my dream job. The basic remit of that role was to activate Bupa's purpose, longer, healthier, happier lives for the eighty six thousand people. So I threw my hat in the ring. Very rigorous. Many interviews, panel interviews. You know, often with the UK. So I do have this great memory of dancing around the boardroom at Booper to the song Happy <laughs> at six AM, trying to get in the right state for this panel interview with all these folks in London. And I was lucky enough to be offered that role. And uh, I really thought I was a black sheep in that process with no HR experience. But I still remember the call. Chief People Officer said, Cassie, you are the unicorn we've been searching for. We don't want someone from HR. We right. want someone who's going to think differently. And that was an extraordinary time for me. Um, and that the, the reason I was successful in that role was really back to what we talked about around Uh, appreciating and amplifying what you described as natural genius was we began to embark on this kind of appreciative inquiry process where we really looked for the bright spots that already existed in that vast, complex network that was the organisation. And we started by uncovering, amplifying and connecting those bright spots. I remember a PowerPoint slide I did with stars and a constellation. I remember saying to the global HR team, we need to find the stars and make the constellation. That's where we're going to begin. <laughs> um, and that was a wonderful, wonderful time.
1: So. Uh, employee experience. I like, I like how they were talking about longer, healthier, and happier. Um, something that popped in, you know, is a question I've asked since I was maybe, I think 12 years old is the earliest I can kind of recall. It was why aren't people healthier, happier, and hungrier for success? Cause that was me naturally. I'm like, w- why don't we have this? And someone recently brought up the, you know, I was, t- I was talking with someone who's a speaker and it was some sort of, uh, data around that, 90% of people's thoughts uh, of people have a negative thought bias. So they have more negative thoughts than they do positive, right? That, and, and a cool, I, I kind of stood back and I went, can you repeat that? Like seriously? Cause I hadn't seen that before. And so I did a bit more research and which is really, really scary. Like, like really sad for me. Like if people have more negative thoughts per day than positive thoughts, that that's, I find that really, really sad. Um, there's a negative thought for me sad (laughs) um but that that we live in a world where it's supposed to be a better place there's supposed to be more opportunities etc but you know what the fascinating thing is when you flip the opposite side so this is thinking right so 90 percent of people think more negatively than positively and depending on which research you read there's somewhere between 6,000 and 60,000 thoughts per day. So I don't think they really know because the the data is so different there, but we have a lot of thoughts every day and 95% of them are repetitive apparently. So, so people are repeating these negative things. Do you know that 90% of people speak, actually no, it's higher than that. It's close to, it's nearly close to a hundred percent of people speak, speak in a positive bias. So we speak more positively than negatively. I find that fascinating that we've got a whole lot of people that might on the outside seem like they're happy, but on the inside are really sad. And so when when it comes to developing these employee experiences, how are we actually measuring this? Because on the if we on the outside they might be showing that they're happy, but on the inside they may not be.
0: Oh, I love the string of research you've just um, put together like pearls on a string there, Craig. I, I wish I'd written that down. I'll have to re-listen to this and write that down because it paints a very compelling picture. And, and we know from the negativity of bias of the brain, absolutely, we have more negative thoughts than we have positive thoughts. Uh, and we know I've recently undertaken some training in the thinking environment. And that in that uh, body of work by Nancy Klein, she points to research that says, we, we think so much more than what we say. So what we say um, or communicate is really the tip of the iceberg in terms of what we're really thinking because we think at such a higher pace than what we could ever talk. Mm. So, yes, um, and so this is a challenge, right? How do you truly have the finger on the pulse of how people are really feeling when we we don't always disclose the truth and uh, and there's a negativity bias. So there's no perfect instrument of course. Um, but let me explain what, what, what I led the change I led at Bupa. So I do remember, um, when I got into that role, I, I remember sitting at my desk thinking, Oh, holy cow, what the heck do I do now? This was a good idea, but there's 86,000 people out there. Where do I start? Mm. And so, um, uh, through deep reflection and conversation what emerged was the appreciative in- inquiry lens which which unearthed the really powerful um, well-being program that was called performance energy that we amplified across the organization and what also emerged is well let me just at least get some quick wins what's the low-hanging fruit here and one of the most obvious areas of low-hanging fruit was this horrible clunky employee engagement survey. That had been in place for many, many years. And as an executive at Bupa, I'd seen, you know, for many years, this kind of gesture of filling out this long survey, at least 60 questions, maybe Mm -hmm. one verbatim, and all of that, seeing all of the, you know, the hula that then went on of the, paying thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars to some external company to months later compile these long PowerPoint documents (laughs) that then resulted in kind of these long action plans that everyone went through the motions and, um, you know, I don't want to paint too bad a picture because of course there was some improvement, but, but mainly it was surface level. And the big challenges we know with these long verbatim annual surveys is they don't give us any actionable insights. They just give us a whole bunch of numbers. And even if there were actionable insights, by the time we get onto the action, the data is stale. (laughs) So so the so one of the things I did is I, I remember flying to London, meeting with this big global provider of a server and letting them know that we weren't going to renew the contract. And there was a lot of kind of shock and horror in that and people kind of saying, What are you what are you doing? And it's like, well, you've all been complaining about this for years. Like, <laughs> why don't we do something different? Mm. Um, you know, and so you know, kudos to the executive. Um, who had the courage to do something new because often these numbers are baked into remuneration and bonuses and they're so intricately intertwined into the systems and structures that people are afraid to change them. So kudos to Bupa, who had the courage to go from that big survey to just a couple of questions. And we ask people, to what extent are you happier and healthier because you work at Bupa? And most importantly, we ask them why or why not. And the second question is a classic ENPS question, which is, to what extent would you recommend Bupa as a great place to work? Why or why not? Mm. And so what those just four questions, two numbers, two verbatims did is it got right to the heart of the matter. Of course, these surveys were anonymous. Of course, we took a lot of care to make sure that no leader could drill down to the point where an individual response could be identifiable. We did a lot to protect people's identities there. Um, to ensure honesty. So I, I, I can say honestly, we I feel like we did everything we could to develop a mechanism that where people could speak their truth, ask the most important questions and to protect people's confidential anonymity. I can never say mm. that word, you know, protect people's identity in, in that. And then of course that needed to be paired with a with a culture change where leaders were expected to, to be able to say, how are you going on these two metrics that were pulse metrics regularly throughout the year, uh, where leaders were expected to be able to speak to what they were doing to move the dial on those two numbers were expected to be raising their voice up the line if there were systemic headwinds that got in the way of their people being healthier, happier, or loving, or or recommending loving working there. And so, you know, that's a slow burn, as you know, multi-year culture change, but it started with, you know, a radical simplification of the data we were collecting and a real focus on doing everything we could to ensure people could speak honestly and and another important layer that I feel important to mention is the message was very much to leaders there should be no surprises in this survey. If you get your quarterly poll survey and there's things in the verbatim that you didn't know about, this is a problem. This is almost like a safety net that should reinforce the conversations you're already having with people and what you already know about what are the headwinds to health and happiness and engagement in your team. If, if you're relying on this poll survey as the single um, kind of su- source of insights in- into how your people are feeling and what you need to do to make them feel better. Then this is a problem, and and that's not really our expectation of you as a leader. We expect you that this survey is a reinforcement of- reinforcement of what you already know and what you're already addressing. Um, yeah.
1: Okay, I love I love a couple of things about this. One is, yeah, I think data's <laughs> data's great, but data's massively overdone. Um, and it's only as good as what you can actually meaningfully digest and understand and then and utilize. But when I think about 80, 80 85, 86,000.
0: Yep. 86, okay, so, yeah.
1: yeah 86,000 people at a company who are answering two questions. You've got, you know, either on both questions, you've got a why not or a why, um, if everyone's responding, there's a lot of data again, right? So, so then how were you mining that data to understand what then could we be changing inside the organization to make the employee experience better?
0: Well, the blueprint we used is one that comes from Bain, um, called Net Promoter System. There's a whole website on Net Promoter System, but what that system allows, it basically builds the capability to listen, learn, respond to high volumes of feedback. Mm-hmm. So, um, there were kind of two improvement loops that that we um, were um, turning as a result of that feedback. The first improvement loop was a localized improvement loop. So. Um, And and one of the things that were fortunate for me, having gone from customer experience innovation to employee experience innovation, is that when I stepped into the employee experience side, I'd already invested years and Bupa had invested millions of dollars in building the capability to listen, learn, and respond to customer Mm. feedback. And so we already had that connective tissue, that that capability, um, you know, to take in feedback, to huddle on that feedback, to agree, what were the localized improvement opportunities that existed, and what were the systemic challenges that needed to be escalated, prioritized, escalated, and so we really were able to tap into that capability that had had been, you know, t- taken many years and and significant investment to develop and embed, um, to then you know um, focus that same capability to to take that feedback in, to discern within the feedback what was most critical, to understand what what root causes were already being addressed by work that was already in progress, what were new challenges or areas for change that had emerged um, of those new areas, what were most important, most impactful to focus on and who is best positioned to to lead that change. At a local or bigger at a at a higher order level um so yeah that's that's how we did it through that capability that was very much an embedded capability that had existed on customer feedback but that hadn't been applied to employee feedback mainly because there was no data to feed that those mechanisms because of this horrible annual clunky survey that actually did not give any actionable insight; just a whole bunch of numbers.
1: Okay, so we're looking at a macro perspective here. What we're doing more from a micro perspective when we think about, you know, tying this into the work that you do now about, you know, sort of being true to yourself and things like that, and and, and understanding the individuals, because is this is all anonymous? The the eighty six thousand, the the high level questions, how were we then diving deep into each person and making sure that they were able to connect to their purpose or who they were and how that was in how that was ensuring the employee experience was great? Because the macro level doesn't tell you uh the micro environments that are happening inside the organization.
0: Exactly right. And you know there, there was there was no there were very few kind of macro one size fits all improvements. This was very much a game of precision. You know, precise interventions in each of those local areas because it would be it would make no sense to implement some sort of. Change in a small dental practice in Parramatta and versus a you know aged care facility out on the outskirts of London. Right, there, there was such diversity mm. in the actual workplaces, and the, the, there were thousands and thousands of subcultures within that. So very much the approach was one around kind of gentle precision at each of those individual locations. The one mechanism that we landed on that I, I think. As kind of this brilliance in its simplicity was the idea of non negotiables. Hmm. And so I think having, having to do, I do a lot of work in the wellbeing space, both with my work with Thrive Global and through my own practice. And you know, we often see organisations kind of take these blanket approaches. I think I've heard them called the, the, the three Fs, fun, fitness and fruit. <laughs> you know? um, what do you mean, Craig, you're not feeling well? Haven't you had a banana from our fruit box or done Pilates? You know, it's now on twice a week. <laughs> or, you, you know, come next month to the fun run and I'm sure you'll feel fine. <laughs> um, I actually have this moment in my corporate days when um in another organisation where it's complaining about the state of employee engagement and the the HR director said to me, what, what are you talking about, Cassie? Haven't you seen we're now offering Pilates twice a week? What more could we be doing? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't last long in that organisation. Um, so this idea of non-negotiables, it was brilliant because it was 100% adaptable to each of those individual 86,000 people the the idea was that you know on top of the survey on top of the performance energy program and all, and all of that that as a leader you're expected to know what were the non-negotiables for each person in your team what does craig need day to day week to week in order to feel like himself Right, Hmm. And those non-negotiables were as unique as every individual. For some, it might be, you know, I really need to leave work at 3 o'clock on a Friday so I can take my son fishing or I need to drop the kids off two days a week, which means I can't make the 9 o'clock calls or, you know, I have this memory of a group in my team at the time who said, look, if I can run three times a week, I'm just so much of a better human. And so I, I remember sitting in the lobby of the Booper building, seeing a whole bunch of people go running, a whole bunch of employees go running through the city at 10 a.m. I think it was at 10 a.m. on a Tuesday morning. I thought that's non-negotiables in action, right, because no one's going to say to them, hey, guys, where, where? And guys and girls, well, why are you running at 10 a.m.? Don't you have emails to do? You know, that was their non-negotiables and that's the time they decided to run. Um, and so, yeah, the, the answer to that question primarily was this idea of building a culture that encouraged people to get clear on their non-negotiables and building a culture where the, as much as possible, and of course, in a call center environment, other environments where you know it's trickier, uh, as much as possible, we would help um, help to honour, support people to honour those non negotiables to well being, um, and have an awareness of them. You know, the, the, it went so far as individuals could choose to put their non-negotiables or their adherence to their non-negotiables in their annual performance review mm. if they chose to do that as another layer of accountability around that.
1: I like that. I like those non-negotiables for each individual employee. I think that is something that every organization should be looking to apply to the way that they their leaders work and their managers work and understanding those. Um, Gallup does the best of me. Have you ever seen that It's the four things?
0: Uh, I have vague recollection of the best of me by Gallup, but I'm gonna make a note of that too and look that up.
1: Yeah, it's really good. It, like it, it helps you understand how how someone works best. So you get the best of me when, you get the worst of me when, and um, this is what I need from you. Um, I can't remember the other one off the top of my head, but oh, yeah, great. really, really four powerful questions in a quadrant and I we use that all the time for our team. So that they can just pick up anyone, any person that they're going to be working with, and ch- check on that at any point, and it's so so powerful. You understand why people do certain things in certain ways that you may get frustrated with previously or whatever. So it, it's a it's fascinating to do something that sort of exercise. Now, in your book Being True, you talk a lot about authenticity, and I'm finding in the world right now that as leaders, it could be really confusing you know, you must be an authentic leader. No, you must be a strategic leader. No, you must be a courageous leader. No, you must be a vulnerable leader. No, you must be a uh, agile leader. And there's so many things and we all know you need all those components at certain times, including command and control, by the way, for anyone who thinks that you can't use command and control, there are times where you need that. Um, but talking about authenticity, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot more around this. It's It's kind of It's still very much front and centre when people talk about leadership at the moment. What is authenticity when it comes to leadership and how do we apply it in the workforce?
0: Mm. Yeah, I think authenticity is a big topic, right? So, my, my perspective on what does it mean to be an authentic leader is that to be authentic starts with this trust, in who we are at our core and this um, belief that true leadership comes from us honouring and activating that, that that leadership is not um, like a predetermined set of capabilities that exist outside of ourselves that one must acquire in order to be a good leader. Yes, there are technical skills, financial acumen, communication, ability to take like feedback, the list goes on. There are technical skills that we can acquire in order to be a well-rounded leader, but the core of inspired, inspiring leadership comes from this knowing that, you know, to, that true leadership is about being ourselves, Um it's not about becoming something that we are not. And so, you know, in my book, True Leadership, I kind of use that acronym of true leadership where the T stands for um, someone who trusts in their innate leadership potential. You know, if you look at the qualities of our core, um, at our core we are all confident, courageous, curious, playful, compassionate beings. These are the qualities of leadership, right? And they're innate in all of us. So the T is that we trust in our innate leadership potential. We know how to reassure ourselves in the moments when we find ourselves off course from that. We deeply understand ourselves, that we have a level of self-awareness that extends way beyond, you know, our strengths and our values. We understand who we are at our core and we understand and ideally have some sort of relationship with the parts of ourselves that get in the way of that and that we can empower ourselves in moments that matter. That's the E. So, you know, that's my perspective on true leadership, that it's innate, uh, that it requires a diligent practice in in order to kind of activate and honour and that practice really um, centres around this idea of, you know, there's parts of me, there's sharp edges within me that may show up in ways that it's really anti-leadership behaviour and it's my job to lead and reassure and take care of those parts in order to step into who I really am.
1: This is great. This is great. I like this. I like how you ended there because I think it's really important. I've been doing a writing piece and kind of researching a bit on this at the moment around integrity and responsibility are the filter to authenticity and vulnerability. Uh, So if we look at authenticity, someone naturally might share their frustrations externally, for instance, right? That's their authentic self. They... They, as a kid, might have screamed when they didn't like something. Uh, they might be someone who will, who will show all their emotions and frustration when something don't, doesn't go right. But is that appropriate? Is that serving everyone else in certain situations? Uh, if we think about vulnerability, right? As, as at the beginning of COVID, if someone had really shared uh, exactly how they felt as a leader, and said, look, I don't know what we're doing. I am really lost. Um, I, I can't help you right now, right? If that's how they felt inside, that's great. But that's not being responsible in that moment, because we know that those who actually went into a situation of clarity, this is what we know, this is what we don't know, and here's the next step, are those companies that were super successful and leaders that were successful in that moment of crisis. Or if you're flying a plane, and both engines go out 200 feet off the ground you're not going to go onto the microphone and tell everyone we're going to die um and start screaming and and things like that it's not going to serve anyone right your job is to stay focused and share what needs to be known and so i i feel that sometimes that the authenticity and vulnerability that's been talked about out in the marketplace is not being put into perspective around the appropriateness of what it is and what does really being an authentic leader or authentic person mean in a situation or what does vulnerability actually mean and when do we use it because just because we can be vulnerable just because we can be authentic doesn't mean we always should and (laughs) so uh, i'm curious to hear your thoughts on this because it's been sitting in my mind for a while i've been writing some pieces about it curious to hear other people's thoughts
0: <laughs> I love it, I love it. And I think, yeah, you know, there, there's a there's a fundamental misconception that we are singular in our psychology. You know, we are taught that there's one you, there's one me, and if that's not true, then we might have um, multiple personality disorder, which is now known as dissociative identity disorder, DID. So this idea of the multiplicity of human mind has been kind of pathologized, or we're taught to believe that that's somehow abnormal. So I think the foundation on which we need to stand to have an accurate understanding of authenticity is the foundation that, of the the natural multiplicity of the human mind, that we have a core and we have many parts. And, you know, applying that lens to some of those scenarios you just shared, Craig. So so part of me is angry and wants to scream, but I'm going to dig deep in this moment and find some sort of place of calm. Um, Part of me is absolutely panicked and, and is absolutely terrified. She has no idea what to do. But as a leader, I have the tools to dig deeper to find my courage to lead. Um, similarly, for the airline pilot, as for example, <laughs> part of me is terrified he's going to die. But let me just reach within deeper than that to find this place of calm. So without the understanding of the multiplicity of the human mind and and this this view of 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 the psyche I suppose which, which lots of modalities know like the ifs modality calls those parts but other modalities would call those schema states subpersonality ego States you know the, most branches of psychology recognize this but somehow it hasn't gotten the mainstream you know um and you know, often when we're feeling angry, we're feeling judgmental, we're feeling overwhelmed. The language we would use is "I am angry," "I am overwhelmed," "I am frustrated." But the the more accurate description is "part of me is overwhelmed, mm. part of me is frustrated." And I, I try to teach this to my two kids, which are nine and eleven. When 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 the youngest says munger boy says i i hate elliot i wish he would be dead (laughs) you know i try to normalize that and say i know sweetheart that part of you wishes your brother was dead but deep down i know that you love him
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's a it's interesting concept to for for a child to try and take on even an adult so to speak um when when we look at authenticity and how that connects to culture and belonging in an organization or a team, you know, if you're, if you're leading a team or a part of a community, even how, what role does authenticity play?
0: I think it's essential. Um, yeah i think particularly when it comes to creating cultures of belonging right because i you know do some work in this space around how do we co-create or cultivate cultures of true belonging and you know the research is very clear that that connects this idea of people feeling free to show up with with all their aspects of self in in a way that's professional and skillful of course um, our capacity to feel free to be ourselves and the extent to which we feel like we belong is so linked. And you know, particularly the, the researcher, Dr. Brené Brown, talks about this. You know, I think she says to, in her own words, in the moment I have to pretend to be something I'm not is the moment I don't belong anywhere. And so I think authenticity through this lens of how do I know and embrace all that I am? How do I belong to myself? How do I cultivate a self-leadership practice that that tells all of my parts? There's space for all of you here. Some of you aren't mature or experienced enough to get into the driver's seat right now, so you're gonna be in the back seat, but there's space for all of me in this moment. Um, with some discernment about who's going to be in the driver's seat and who's going to be um, in the back seat uh, as a leader. So when we cultivate that self-understanding and those practices that that embraces all aspects of self, in, in effect we belong to ourselves and then we belong anywhere. And so I think that understanding of authenticity is so essential uh, as leaders to cultivate cultures of true belonging places where people feel heard and seen and and appreciated and valued for who they are not just what they do mm-hmm. um and th- that as kind of a core of a healthy um, culture I believe is is essential and often overlooked you know I think most organizations when they think about creating cultures of belonging, they go first to creating more connection. But as I mentioned before we started recording, Craig, I, I think the challenge I see with that is if we're connecting wearing masks, then that additional connection actually can be corrosive to to belonging and well-being and performance. Um, so my personal view is authenticity is the starting point for any conversation about cultures of belonging. And we know that's vital to employee engagement and retention. I think the McKinsey research says that, you know, 50% of people who leave feel like they didn't belong.
1: Okay. All right. A couple of things here. Um, when we talk about belonging, that doesn't mean like, this is my feeling on this because I think sometimes people paint this picture that belonging that everyone can belong to whatever you have. No, they can't like it's that environment will not flourish if we make anyone can belong to it, right? So I'll give you a couple of instances at the moment, uh, at the gym, there's a mums and bubs. Like, so for those who haven't listened to a podcast with me before, I have an eight month baby daughter and probably by the time you listen to this, we'll be close to nine months uh, or older. Now at the gym, they have a mums and bubs, which is great, right? There's no, there's no dads and bubs. And, and as much as that irritates me, I understand why it's a mums and bubs because the mums experience something quite different to dads and it's, and it's their place of connectedness. So I'm okay with that. Um, and, and so for me, I'm okay that I don't need to belong to that group or, or I don't, f- or I don't feel like I belong and I'm okay. And, and I can't belong. That's all right. I'm okay with that. I, uh, if. If for certain times we want to move at speed on something, it's not always good to have a real diversity of people. So, we actually may exclude people and that's okay. But I think if we don't have, a, and, and I think if every organization thinks they can be a place of belonging, create a sense of belonging for any person, I think they're kidding themselves. That That's my perception on it because uh, y- If we say look at Elon Musk and the way he approaches his leadership, right, they would alienate a lot of people. But if he allowed, if he opened that up, I don't think they would move as fast as they do. I don't think they'd be as creative as they do in some ways. And so this whole sense of belonging thing in regards to cultures, it needs to, we need to realize that we are going to exclude people and that is absolutely okay. But for those people that we need and that, that need to be in their organization, for that organization to flourish, then we need to create that space where people feel like they belong. Have I pushed too many buttons here? I don't know because I'm kind of <laughs> seeing you. I, I'm seeing you get a little bit agitated, but I'm also seeing you smiling and I can see you kind of thinking. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think sometimes this whole talk of belonging has gone too far and and there are places that we need to open up more and create more opportunities and it will benefit that team or organization but there are other times where it's actually going to hinder them
0: yes look i i really appreciate all you shared you know there's some certain moments i noticed parts of me having a reaction um definitely i think it's a controversial again complicated Conversation where there's no simple answer, right? I mean, the first thing I want to say is I think there should be a dads and bubs class at your local gym. <laughs> I think. We should,
1: it should be parents and bubs.
0: <laughs> parents and bubs or oh, dads and bubs and moms and bubs or, you know, mm. um, yeah, parents and bubs, people who opt in to maybe all three of those offerings, each of them would would offer a unique community and a unique perhaps um, a sense of support to people um, so I think in that example, that is just, uh, unfortunately a legacy of, of, of you know, outdated expectations about who are primary carers for our children, which uh, a legacy that needs to be updated. Um, so I, I feel compelled to say that and maybe, maybe you should start one of those classes, Craig.
1: <laughs> y- yes and no, though, because like... Look, I would love an opportunity that I can go to the gym with the baby because I don't have any support for her right now outside of when my wife's working at a at a venue, and that's the time that I can go to the gym or whatever. But I also understand that if if it changed to a parents and bubs, where both dads and mums could go, then the dynamic of those conversations and that group would totally change, and so other people may not feel a sense of belonging anymore because it doesn't fit why they are there what what they love being part of oh, you know? yes.
0: yes oh yeah I, I I'm suggesting there should be three people people can opt into a mums and bubs a dads and bubs and a parents and bubs. <laughs> There should be three classes that each person could select from. Each parent could select from, depending on what they want to get out of it. So, yeah, yeah. No, no, I'm not. I'm not suggesting that 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 necessarily you just include the dads with the mums. Because I agree, there's a special dynamic that comes from mothers and from dads getting together. So, yes, I just want to clarify that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'll give you another instance too, right? I played for a field hockey team that has a New Zealand record of 272 games unbeaten. And and worldwide, you would struggle to find any other team that has achieved anywhere near that, let alone achieve that. It What worked for that team to be super successful and for those who were regularly part of that team to work really well together and feel like they belong was it it was, um, you had to earn your place on that team. Didn't matter how good you were. You, you could be New Zealand's best player, but you had to earn your right to be on that team. Now, if we just opened up and said, we want the best players and, and anyone's welcome to join and, and be part of that team based on your performance ability, that team would have not achieved 270 games unbeaten. So we need to understand what is required in that environment to succeed, before we then can go, um, how much belonging? What what is the type of belonging we need to create for this?
0: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So there's no one size fits all. So one one thought that occurred to me as you you were talking earlier was the Elon Musk example, right? Um, a you know, controversial figure. I have my own personal perspective on how much he may be driven by the desire to prove himself to someone versus the desire to really um, activate his essence as a leader. Let's leave that to one side. Um, So you talked about the situation, the scenario where we need to privilege or prioritize speed over anything else. And in that example, perhaps um, full inclusion comes to the detriment of speed. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, in, you know, in, in any scenario there's there's trade-offs that that occur and I, I think what I would advocate for is making those trade up, trade-offs with a wide-awake awareness. At what cost do we want to move fast here? What is the cost of moving fast? What is the human cost of moving fast? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's easy just to say, oh, we can't talk to everyone we've got to move fast with no time for that but but it's one thing to do that you know blindly and there's another thing to do that with the right communication and the right uh support around the edges to to understand that that will come at a cost you know the pace at which elon is moving comes at a huge human cost mm. to the people that choose to stay in that system it comes as a huge cost to him it's visible <laughs> in his demeanor. Um so for me, I think um I'm not suggesting there's easy answers and I'm certainly not gonna judge what's right and wrong here. Uh, what I what I stand for is um awareness of um the trade-offs and the cost, the true human cost of, for example, privileging speed over inclusion. Um and seeing that from different perspectives not just the perspective of the of the strong and the fast and the able bodied um and and the you know whatever whatever you know needs to be there for us to be strong and fast um so yeah um that's probably the end of that particular thought on that yeah
1: <laughs> it's it's a challenging piece and i think there's no one size fits all to this but i just yeah, I just feel we just need to add a bit of caution to how people are positioning belonging, how people are positioning things like authenticity and vulnerability about the be all and end all, and and isolating them at times. And I think we've mm. we've got to think about it from a system perspective around what is required. Not only from a team or a business or a collective point of view, but also the individuals, which you which you you know, yeah. highly talked about. You know, even for Elon Musk, those people that uh you know, maybe the, the small percentage of the population that love being in exciting environments where there's, where there's a big dream and they love working fast and long hours is all great in the moment, but where's the responsibility long term as we know that will over time it will lead to the detriment of that human being and their ability to perform and and potentially their mental health. Potentially, I'm gonna say potentially, because people can can and may continue to thrive for long periods of time. But in many cases it may not. But these have been fascinating discussions. I'm just looking at time and wow, we've we've already well and truly exceeded the hour we were kind of approaching at the beginning, but it seems like it's only been 10 minutes. Uh, We all know smart people have great answers, but the most successful people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time?
0: So I've thought about this question as well. You know, and I'm doing things for the first time every day. You know, we've never spoken before, Craig, and here we find ourselves in just an hour, over an hour has flown by. But I think um, recording my audiobook, so transcribing or translating my second book into an audio book and being the one to narrate that, last late last year was a big first for me It was very a very fulfilling experience and then starting my own podcast earlier this year is a big first for me um so yeah there are a couple of notable examples that come to mind
1: oh, i love them very good starting your own podcast it's a it's a great thing what is the one question that you would love to solve
0: the one question i would love to solve is how might we continue to cultivate faith in who we really are at our core. You know, this is a practice of self-fidelity. And, of course, I've developed my perspective on that question, but I I really hope to continue to refine and um, enrich those practices so that more and more people have a reliable go-to kind of self-leadership practice that helps them reconnect, restore faith in who they really are.
1: Brilliant. Brilliant. For you, what is an inspiring great leader and who is a great example of this for you?
0: For me, um, Dr. Stuart Brown, who founded the National Institute of Play in the US, is one of my mentors and has been an inspiring leader for me. I met Dr. Stuart Brown at the Stanford D School, uh, immersive from play to innovation, and he's supported both my books and recently came on my podcast. And just as a man who embodies this idea of play as being the way we learn, connect, grow, uh, and has really been a pioneer in that field for many, many decades. So Dr. Stuart Brown for me is one of the most exceptional and inspiring leaders I've had the good fortune to know.
1: I love it. This has been a really powerful conversation. Uh, How can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you?
0: So, I'm very active on LinkedIn, so people can reach out on LinkedIn. Cassandra Goodman, you'll find me. My banner is bright yellow. Um, I also have a website, which is selffidelity.com. And my little fledgling podcast is called True Power, and people can find that on Apple or Spotify.
1: Beautiful. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today, Cassandra. Love diving into... Uh, think you know, for people how they can be more true to themselves, how they can unpack their natural genius, how they can show up authentically and vulnerably in the appropriate moments and really understanding, you know, how you've taken what you're doing in some of the biggest companies around the world to now applying it to the individual and how we can learn from those. Uh, I've, thank you so much for some great insights and also some, some really interesting Um, discussion around a couple of different topics today. So, thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Craig. I really enjoyed our conversation.
1: It's time for you to join the Inspiring Great Leaders movement by visiting craigjohns.com.au. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to hashtag Inspiring Great Leaders. We would love it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the Craig Johns LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Inspiring Great Leaders Podcast. Where the ordinary don't belong.